Uh, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at a uh, text uh, this morning, which we could have been tempted to breeze over. I could have preached it along with the verses before it. I could have preached it along with the verses that come after it. But I, I found in, these, uh, short, in this short passage, just four verses, uh, three things that I think are important that we spend time on this morning. Um, three things uh, that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, which I believe have some very uh, important applications. Three things uh, that if we can get a handle on these three things, uh, I think will, it will strengthen our faith and thus make us a healthier uh, church. So uh, we're going to look at verses 17 through 20 of chapter 2. Um, after telling the church in Thessalonica why he is so grateful for them, Um, And then after he tells them about what a godly ministry is, and then after he tells them more about how grateful he is for them, he then seeks to encourage the church in Thessalonica. And he does this with a word of testimony uh, in which we learn that you can't always get what you want. This is the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2, starting at verse 17, reading to the end of the chapter. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So as I said, three things in this word of testimony uh, that Paul addressed. He starts by talking about his desire. He has this godly desire, and he does not receive this desire. He wants something, and he doesn't get it. He then talks about the reason why he doesn't get what he wants, which is to say he talks about the opposition that he faced. Uh, And then finally, he talks about his boast, which is to say he talks about all the right kind of pride that he has. And yes, in fact, I attempt to prove that there is a right kind of pride. Now, as we look at these three things, um, my, my prayer is that we will realize that we can't always get what we want. But if we keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus, trusting in him, and if we respond to his redeeming work by seeking to do what would honor and glorify him, and if we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to do that, we might just get what we need. As we get into our text, uh, the first thing we need to realize is that Paul once again uses a, uh, a, a, a simile or a, a metaphor. He uses figurative language um, concerning his relationship with the church in Thessalonica. And, and, and he, he particularly um, refers to a family relationship here in our text that you wouldn't notice Uh, unless you took some time to investigate the original language. Uh, So let me fill you in on that. But first, let me just remind you of the other family relationships that he's used as metaphors. So four times so far, and then once more in our text, he calls the Thessalonians brothers. Right? That's not just, you know, like nowadays we kind of do that. You know, hey, what's going on, brother? It's just kind of like something we say. but, But when I say it, you know, I texted somebody this morning, or I responded to Jake's email, and I said, uh, I don't remember what I said, it's a very short sentence at the end of it, I said, brother, but I, 
I mean that. Like, I mean that like Paul. I don't say that to say, hey, what's going on, brother? You know, like unbelievers say that to each other. But, but the point of, of Paul and the point when I refer to somebody as a brother, I'm emphasizing the closeness of this relationship we have because we both have the same father. We are brothers, like true brothers, brothers that will last for all eternity. So Paul's called them brothers four times. He has compared his ministry to the Thessalonians to the care that a nursing mother provides for her children, which is emphasizing uh, the sacrifice and selflessness with which he has served them. And then he's also compared his ministry to the relationship between a father and his children to emphasize the encouragement and the exhortation that he's given them, just like a father is responsible to do. Now, once again in our text, Paul uses a family relationship. And you're looking here and you're going, where? I don't see it. Well, it's there because this time he identifies not with a parent and not with a sibling, but he identifies with an infant son because this this word that is used here to emphasize the significance or the severity of which he feels this separation is, is is the word that is uh, quite literally means to make an orphan of someone. The word that is translated here in in, uh, the ESV, which is well translated, that we were torn away from you, is actually the word used to make an orphan of someone. Now think about that for a second. Think about how severe it is when a, a child is made into an orphan, right? What does that mean? Well, it means either their parents have died and they've lost their parents, uh, I mean, uh, or it, it just means that for whatever reason, the child has been torn away from their parents. Now, maybe the child should be torn away, but that's not the way we should understand this, uh, what he is trying to get at here is the severity of which the separation uh, took place, right? Like he was, he was ripped out of the arms of his parents. This is how Paul feels. He was torn away from this wonderful relationship with his, with his parents. This is how he feels. Now, if you recall, uh, we have talked about how this separation took place, but I think it will be helpful for us for just a minute to review that. And when we do, I think we will see that Paul's not being overly dramatic here. You might think that. I mean, come on, Paul. It's not that, that big of a deal. You don't have to be that dramatic about it. Really, it's like you were made an orphan of. Well, let's consider the circumstances. It, it started with Paul and Timothy and Silas. Uh, first met the Thessalonians, and they preached the gospel to them. We learn this in Acts 17, 1 through 3. Now, uh, as is often the case, some people respond well, and, uh, and they, they trust in Jesus. They become saints, and, uh, and then some people don't. And the primary individuals that don't respond well are the Jews. So uh, the Jews form a mob, and they go to deal with Paul and Silas and Timothy, but they can't find them. And so instead, they grabbed Jason which I always think is weird. The name Jason is in the Bible, you know. I don't know. I just think that's really weird. But Jason, the name was around. I, it always seems to me like a new name. Uh, anyway, sorry, I, I digress. So uh, they go to Jason's house, and, uh, and they're not there. And so they, uh, they take Jason and some of his friends, um, and they bring them before the authorities, and they accuse them of making all kinds of trouble. They then charged Jason, <laughs> Jason, and he and his friends were released, and then they immediately go to Paul and Timothy and Silas, and, uh, and, and they get them out of town post-haste, uh, like under the cover of darkness. 
They were taken away from the Thessalonians in an instant. No chance to say goodbye. Uh, no chance to encourage them last time. No, no chance to set up another meeting. Trouble arises, and like an orphan separated from his parents, Paul is separated from the Thessalonians, and he is not happy about this, not one bit. In other words, Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that in his current context, he is not getting what he wants. He doesn't want this, not, not at all. Now, with that in mind, uh, Paul goes on to say that while he's separated from them in person, he is not separated from them in, in heart. Now, uh, I don't take that to mean like I'm, uh, uh, you know, like people say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not there, but I'm really there with you, you know, and I'm kind of like, or they say I'm there with you in heart, and I'm kind of like, but you're not here. I, I think when Paul says I'm there with you in heart, he's saying, where I want to be is there with you, but I'm not there with you. So he, again, I think he's just emphasizing how bad he wants to be there and, and, and the severity of the fact that he cannot be with them. His heart longs to be with them, uh, but he can't be. And he's tried to be. He says, he says there in verse um, 18, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. Again and again, I've tried, I've tried, and it hasn't happened. Now, if you read again, uh, sorry, if you read further, we discover that the we here mentioned is not Paul, Timothy, and Silas anymore. It has been thus far. But at this point, when he says we, he must only mean Paul uh, himself and Silas. Because Timothy, as we will learn in chapter 3 in next week's sermon, in fact, does make it back to the Thessalonians. So he's talking about himself and Silas. That said, Paul indicates how bad he wants to be with them, how he wanted to see them face to face, and he tried to get them again and again. Like Paul is emphasizing here how distraught he is by his current circumstances. He doesn't like it at all. We really get a a window in this text into Paul and his feelings. So what I want to park on here for just a second here is something that we learned in a previous message, and I want to try to apply it in a different way. Um... Uh, if you recall uh, a few weeks ago, let's see. Okay, so I guess it would have been last week. Um, he, he talked about his, his love for the church and his desire to be with the church. And I talked about how we show our love for the church by our attendance, right? Um, and by your desire to be together with God's people when they're gathered. But another way that you show your love for the church is how you respond when you can't be together with the church. So let me ask you, how do you respond when you can't be together with the church when the church gathers? So uh, for example, uh, you're sick on a Sunday. How do you feel about that? Are you happy because now you can just lounge around in your robe and take it easy for that day? And I mean, like, you're really tired and you don't really want to go out and you think, wow, this is great. Um, Or or does it burden you that your, your family is gathered together worshiping and you can't be there? Does it hurt a little or not? Or uh, what about when you book vacations? Uh, do you do your best to be away from church as little as possible? I was actually talking to a few members that were uh, uh, going away recently about this. Right? And I said, man, you're going on vacation again. And the response was, yeah, but we're only gone for one Sunday. Like, that's the right way to think about it. Like, 
I'm not suggesting that you uh, uh, can't be away on a Sunday because of vacation. I go away on Sundays sometimes on vacation. It, it's hard to be away and, and not miss at least one Lord's Day. But what I am suggesting is you should at least think about it when you book your vacations. What can I do to be away the least amount of Sundays? Um, it, it, it should be something that crosses our mind. Uh, absence from the gathered people of God should cause us concern. It, it should hurt. And, uh, and, and, and this is what we see in Paul. Um, we must strive to love the church in Harriet's Field as much as Paul loved the church in Thessalonica. And that is a hard ask. I'm telling you, that is a hard ask, right? Because we have seen, like, Paul really loves the church in Thessalonica. Like, he loves all the church, but it seems like he really loves the church in Thessalonica. And, and I really, uh, you know, pray that God will give us that same kind of love so that we are appropriately upset, right? Appropriately upset. I'm not suggesting that you should be at home banging on the walls and why can't I go to church today, Lord, if you're sick, you know? I'm saying an an appropriate. We should be upset. We should miss being together. It's as though, uh, you know, your your, your family is having a family dinner. Imagine it's Christmas and everybody's gathered for turkey, but you can't be there. You're going to be upset about that. You, You should feel equally as upset when you have to miss the gathering of the Lord's Lord's people. And if you think that Paul is too high of a standard to reach to, uh, let me give you a higher standard, namely the standard that the Lord Jesus set, who literally gave himself for the church. He died for her salvation. He rose to give her life. And, 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 And thus we need this reminder that if we love Jesus, we must love what he loved. And he loved the church so much that he gave himself for her. So may God increase our love for the church and our desire to be present with our brothers and sisters in Christ whenever God's providence permits, right? Sometimes God's providence doesn't permit. Sometimes it's, it's, God's providence is sweet, right? We like our circumstances. Sometimes God's providence is bitter and we don't, don't like it. So, so may God give us a greater love for his, his church. Now, after speaking of his desire, which was to be with Thessalonians, Paul then tells the church why he's not with them. He, he, he explains to them why he has not been able to make this trip. He talks about the opposition. And the opposition that Paul speaks of is not a small roadblock. You know, it's not just like there's, uh, there's construction ahead and you're going to have to wait a while to get through. No, the road is washed out and there's no passing it. This is the roadblock of all roadblocks. He says that they have not been able to get to visit them, even though they've tried, because Satan hindered us. Now, we don't talk about Satan that much, do we? I, and I think that's probably a good idea. I mean, we don't want to obsess over Satan. We don't want to talk about Satan more than is necessary. Um, but there are some things that we need to know about Satan. And when scripture talks about Satan, we should talk about Satan. So this morning, we're going to do just that. Um, some things that we must never forget. Uh, so let me tell you some things uh, about Satan that we learn. Uh, from from this text, but also we're going to dig a little bit different, deeper. So the first thing we learn, which we do definitely learn from here, from this verse, is that Satan exists. He exists. He is real. Uh, he was created as a good angel by God. And at some point uh, between when God created all things and says all things are good, and chapter 3 when Satan uh, appears as a snake, a serpent, sometime between then and, and then, he becomes overwhelmed with pride and he rebels against 
uh, his creator and takes uh, some of the angels with him. So now we have Satan and, and his wicked angels, which are sometimes called demons. So Satan exists. And uh, I don't know, somebody once said the greatest trick Satan ever played was convince, uh, convincing people that he didn't exist. Uh, the second you think that Satan doesn't exist, you're in big trouble. So he exists. Take my word on it. Take God's word on it. Um, second, what he is called is literally, in Greek, the Satan. So when it says Satan with a capital S, it's, it's the Satan because his name defines him, which means in one sense, and interestingly enough, I didn't notice it about the, until this morning, in that, um, in that song, uh, A Mighty Fortress, it talks about many devils in this world. And, and so um, if somebody... Uh, it, it, anyway, let me explain this further in a sec. First, let me just say that there are many Satans in this world, uh, but there is only one, the Satan, okay? Many Satans are many devils, as it says in the song, but only one, the Satan. Third, the word Satan literally means adversary or enemy. That's why he's called the Satan. He is the adversary. He is the enemy. It, it's, it's very much like Jesus is the truth. He's not a truth. It, it's literally, he's the truth. Here, uh, Satan is the enemy, and he is the chief opposer of God and his people. So when people oppose God, or when they attack uh, the church, they are being Satans. They're being adversaries, enemies, um, and they are working for the adversary. They are working for the uh, Satan. When you oppose God, and when you attack the church, you are literally working for the devil, for Satan. Fourth, um, the first time that Satan is introduced in Scripture, that is the Satan, uh, we learn what his primary means of opposing God is, and that is to direct worship away from God. This is the last thing that Satan wants. He wants people to worship false gods, idols. And, and while really there's not anything that he wouldn't do to accomplish what he hopes to accomplish, uh, one of the primary ways that he uh, seeks to direct worship away from God is by lying, which is why uh, Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies. So, I mean, we know uh, there's more we could say about Satan, but I think those are the four primary things that we need to wrestle with. Um, but there's something that we don't know about Satan in this text, and that is how he opposes Paul. How does he hinder Paul from taking this trip? We don't know. It doesn't say. It just says that Satan hindered us. There's a number of uh, things it could have been. Maybe it was through some physical illness. Uh, maybe what Paul might have called a, a thorn in the side. Um, maybe it was through the government. Uh, he's had lots of trouble with the government so far. Uh, that's, in fact, one of the reasons he had to leave Thessalonica. Uh, maybe it was due to poor travel conditions. Uh, maybe it was a combination of things and people. We don't know exactly what it was. But what we do know is that, this, that Satan was the source of the opposition. And, and it makes sense that he would oppose Paul's return to Thessalonica. We can understand how Satan would not want Paul to go to Thessalonica because the last time Paul went to Thessalonica, it says that many Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's exactly the opposite of what Satan wants. Satan wants people to turn from worshiping God to worship idols. And the last time Paul went to Thessalonica, people turned from worshiping idols to worshiping God. So it makes sense that Satan would not be happy uh, and would not want Paul to take this, this trip. Now, uh, with any conversation about Satan, there's something else we must talk about. Um, and 
in some ways it's in this text. It's, it's really going to show up more in next week's text. Um, but I'm going to talk about it this week anyway because it needs to be talked about. Um, we need to talk about the providence of God. Um, and there is nowhere in Scripture where the providence of God, as it relates particularly to Satan, is more clear. So uh, if you're wondering what is the providence of God, uh, the providence of God is, that, is, is basically a reference to God's governing work. Uh, like his superintending work, uh, his governing of all his creatures and all their actions so that what he wants to come about comes about. And, and, and I want to talk about the providence of God specifically as it relates to Satan. And again, as I said, I think that is most clear in Job. Now, if you haven't read Job in a long time, um, you're probably still familiar with Job. I mean, I think even unbelievers are familiar with Job, right? He, he faces this all manner of suffering uh, and then, you know, his friends try to comfort him. And then at the end, he cries out to God with pride and God puts him in his place. And that's kind of a summary of the book of Job. But if we just focus on the beginning of the book of Job, the first two chapters, what the author of the book of Job does is he kind of peels the curtains back so that we get a peek into the spiritual world. Like something that is really happening, but we wouldn't have seen it and we wouldn't know about it unless the author of Job tells us about it. And so what he, he shows us is that there's this conversation going on between Satan, the Satan, and God. They're, they're having this conversation. And, and basically, you know, God says to, to Satan, you know, have you ever thought about my servant Job? And, and he says, yeah, but you know what? The only reason he worships you is, is because you're so good to him. And so uh, God says, okay, um, everything he has, you can, go, you can take. Uh, but you can't, you can't touch him. So in Job 1, 11, and 12, uh, basically uh, all of Job's possessions are destroyed and his children are killed. But only because God gives him permission to do that. And, and so then Satan says, yeah, you know, but if, if you didn't protect Job, then, you know, he wouldn't worship you. And so God, again, gives Satan permission. He says, okay, then you, you, can, you can attack Job, but you can't kill him. And so Satan is uh, able to attack Job and afflict him with all manner of uh, pain unlike you could imagine. And, and, but this only happens, we learn in Job 2, verses 4 through 6, because God gives him permission, which, which teaches us that Satan can only do what God gives him permission to do. You see, the doctrine of God's providence states that God governs and preserves all his creatures and all of their actions. And Satan is one of his creatures, which is to say he governs and, and, and permits him to do what he does, which teaches us that Satan cannot do anything that God doesn't allow him to do, which means that Satan's work and his power is limited. That, that's some good news right there. His power is limited. Uh, you see, Satan is not omnipotent. <laughs> He doesn't have all power, and he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything, and he is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. Now, something else, when it concerns his limits, though he can oppose God and his people, he cannot defeat God and his people. He can oppose them, but he cannot defeat them. He, he cannot stop God's plan. God has a plan for all of history, and, and that will be accomplished. The scripture makes that clear. I, I know I've read the verses many times. I don't need to do that this morning. Um, we, we know this because Satan's demise is already determined. 
we were told about it as early as Genesis 3.15, right? That his head would be crushed. And then, and then later on, Paul tells the church in Rome that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, isn't that great news, right? Because if it was soon 2,000 years ago, it's sooner now. And, and the bottom line is that no one, not even the adversary, not even Satan himself, can get in the way of God getting what he wants. God always gets what he wants, and he wants the salvation of a specific and chosen group of people for his glory, raised from the dead to worship him for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what God wants, and he will get that. Now, what does this mean for us today uh, as it relates to the fact that we don't always get what we want? And especially when a lot of the things that we want are good things. We want our loved ones to be saved. We want our relationships to be healthy. We want our church to grow in number and in sanctification. We want missionaries to be successful in preaching the gospel and planting churches. We want our government leaders to repent and lead in righteousness. We, we basically want our lives and our families and our neighborhoods to be marked by human flourishing. These and many other such things are good. And the fact is, sometimes we don't get these things. We don't always get what we want. And the reason for such, in many cases, is spiritual opposition. Uh, Satan and his army of wicked angels want none of those things of which I just spoke. They don't want your loved ones to be saved. They don't want our relationships healthy. They don't want our churches to grow, missionaries to be successful, government leaders to repent. They do not want human flourishing. Satan and his wicked angels want none of those things. Because they do not want God to be glorified. And that is something that we must never forget. I don't talk about this that much, but when the scripture talks about it, I talk about it. The reality is that the battle that we are engaged in is a spiritual battle. Paul says as much when he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we must be aware of what is going on in the world spiritually, and we must fight. But here is where things kind of go off the rails, and and this is why I don't talk about this as much as some. It usually goes off the rails when people talk about how do we fight this spiritual warfare, and oftentimes it includes casting out demons or or spells or potions or all you know all manner of strange things. But none of those things are are part of spiritual warfare, which is why you should probably, probably steer clear of almost anything that is written, any books that are written about spiritual warfare. Not everything. I'm not saying that I have the, the, the corner on the market of spiritual warfare, but almost everything that is written about spiritual warfare gets into crazy stuff that is not any part of the fight. So let me tell you about how we engage in spiritual warfare. Um, so, first of all, remember who the enemy is. The enemy is Satan um, and his wicked uh, angels. Uh, and then remember what it is that he wants. He wants uh, God to not be worshipped. So then it's really simple. How is it that we fight the spiritual battle? We worship God. That's a kick in uh, Satan's, you know, you know, you know what it is. It, 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 it's a smack in the face. It's, it's a sword to the heart. 
it, it's, it, 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 it's, it's hitting it back to him. If you want to fight Satan, uh, if you want to fight in spiritual warfare, then worship God. And, and also, do your best to bring as many uh, others with you to fight in this battle. Because the more people that worship God, uh, the more uh, churches that are planted, the more God is glorified, the more Satan hates that. Uh, so if, if you want to fight against the devil, live your life in worship of God and, and bring others with you. I mean, just consider that, that famous passage that, that uh, people are so familiar with, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where we're told to put on our armor. Now, if we drop the, uh, the, the metaphors, you know, the sword and all that's important, but if we drop the metaphors, this is what we are to use to fight against the devil because we're not using swords and shields and, and helmets. Those are metaphors, right? Uh, so this is what we're supposed to use. We're supposed to use truth and righteousness and the gospel and faith and salvation and the word of God and prayer and, uh, and, and the Holy Spirit. So what are all those things a part of? All of those things are a part of worshiping God, both as a church and in, in life. So um, if you want to fight the devil, take up that armor. Uh, you know, I, I always uh, get a kick out of people when they say, you know, every morning I get up, I strap on the armor of God. I, I mean, you know, I get it. That's the metaphor. That's what's there. That's what we're supposed to think about. We're supposed to think about that we're putting on this armor. But if you miss the whole metaphor, then, then you miss the whole point. So if you want to put on the armor every day, then, then focus yourself on truth and pursue righteousness and have the gospel at the center of your life. Live by faith. Uh, uh, live as one saved by God. Live according to the word of God in prayer by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is to fight in this spiritual war. I mean, the reality is that we face opposition in life and ministry, and often that opposition is from Satan and his, his demons. Uh, but you must never forget that Satan is limited, and his limits are put there by God. God is not limited, and God is providentially governing all his creatures and all their actions. So Satan will oppose us, and we will face troubles in this life. But because nothing happens which God has not ordained, and because the enemy can do nothing except what God allows, God is to be trusted and obeyed. He has a perfect plan, and if you are one of his children, then that plan includes your resurrection to enjoy the new heaven and earth in the presence of Christ for all eternity. And that plan will be accomplished because God has all power, and his providence will ensure it is accomplished. So, Worship God not because of your circumstances, right? This is the bottom line of this point. Worship God not because of your circumstances. Paul didn't like his circumstances. He didn't like that he didn't get to get what he wanted, but he worshiped God anyway because we worship him because he's worthy. And while we should be aware of Satan and his opposition, you should never be afraid of him. Never be scared of him. That's not necessary. Now, the last thing Paul talks about in our text, something I'm really excited about, um, I think there's a very important application here. He addresses first the desire and the opposition, and now he addressed the boasting. Now, I think we most often use this word boast in a negative way, right? You should never boast, we say, and that's not exactly right, in fact. Um, the scriptures do say a great deal about when we shouldn't boast. So it says we should not boast in idols in Psalm 97, verse 7, which uh, means we should not boast in them as though they were anything more than inanimate objects made of wood and stone and precious metals. Um, we should also not boast in tomorrow, right? We learned that in Proverbs 27, verse 1, and James 4, 16, which is to say we should not be so arrogant to think that we are sovereign over what happens tomorrow. We should also not boast in men, 
which is to give praise to men that belongs to God. We learn that in 1 Corinthians 3. And then we are not to boast in our salvation, which is to suggest that we played some part in our salvation. We learn that in Ephesians chapter 2. So, I mean, there is a lot of bad boasting. I'll give you that. Um, and in many cases, boasting is clearly sin, but not in every case. And, and we know this because the scriptures, in fact, tell us to boast in some things. So in Galatians 6.14, we learn that we should boast in the cross of Christ and in its power. Uh, we learn in Hebrews 3.6 that we should boast in our hope. Now, our hope, as we learn in Hebrews 3, is Jesus. So we should ho- uh, boast in Jesus. Uh, now, um, 2 Corinthians 10.17 says we should boast in the Lord, which is to say boast in the way that he works in and through us. Um, and 2 Corinthians 12 says we should boast in our weaknesses. Now, what is boasting in our weaknesses? Well, we boast in our weaknesses because that makes God look better, which is to say, again, that's a call to boast in God. Um, so, so basically, uh, all of the situations where boasting is good is, is, is when we boast in God, in the Lord, in Jesus, and in his work. Now, uh, let's see what Paul says about his boasting here. Um, The first boast he talks about is uh, a boast that he intends to uh, engage in later. So he says something about when he, he says, listen, you guys, I'm going to boast later on. And this is verse 19. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown or a boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? So so Paul says, Jesus is coming back. Then I'm going to boast. And he says, what am I going to boast in? I am going to boast in you, the church in Thessalonica. So, so Paul is thinking forward to when Jesus will return, when he will stand in his presence, when, uh, when he uh, raises the dead and judges the wicked once for all. Um, and, and when it comes to those who he has saved, they will be resurrected to everlasting life. And what Paul says is that when this happens, Paul is going to go, bam, look at those guys. Yeah. He's going to boast in the Thessalonians on on the day of the resurrection. In other words, what he's saying is that the Thessalonians' presence at the resurrection unto everlasting life is the source of his joy. You know, which, which, which tells us that, you know, when we are in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the people that are there that we played a part in their salvation, not saving them, but a part in God saving them, that will be a source of joy for us. You know, uh, so I feel really sad for you if you've not been involved that much in, in preaching the gospel and evangelizing because you won't have as much joy as somebody else will have. You ever think about that? I think that's pretty crazy. It, it, it should really, uh, I mean, I don't even have this in my notes, but it's just kind of a side note. It should really encourage our evangelism. Um, not so that we want more joy so much so, but it's a nice, it's a nice result that we will have more joy in, in the new heavens and the new earth as a result of people who are there that we played a part in. And, and I think that's really cool because some of the people I'll be like, bam, I knew that, man, that's, I knew it. And other people will be like, Whoa. I had no idea. Like, I didn't even know what I said or what I did. And, uh, but you said something. You were a witness in some way. And that's going to be really cool, right? I mean, I, I, no, make no mistake. You know, the, the joy of heaven is that Jesus is there, right? That, that's going to be the best. Nobody else could be there, but Jesus would be. But it's still cool to think about people who will be there because you played some part in, in their salvation, you know. So, uh, so, again, in God saving them, you know what I'm saying. So, so th- this is what I want us to realize here as we get back to this boasting in the Thessalonians. 
Um, Paul is not boasting in his own labors. He's not going to be like, man, look at those Thessalonians. That's all me, brother. No, that, that's not what he's saying here. Um, and, and neither is he even boasting in the Thessalonians uh, and their work. Instead, he's boasting in God. When he boasts in, in the Thessalonians, he's boasting in God. Because consider what he has told us about their salvation. In verse uh, 4 of chapter 1, he says that God the Father is the one who chose them. And then in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, he says that God the Holy Spirit is the one who convicted them of the truth of the gospel. And then in uh, chapter 1, verse 10, he says that God the Son is the one who saves them from the wrath to come. So then when, when Paul boasts in the Thessalonians and in their conversion, he's boasting in God. And he's boasting in God's electing, empowering, and redeeming work. And when Jesus returns and the Thessalonians' faith is confirmed as genuine and they are shown to be the redeemed of God, their presence in the new heaven and the earth among the resurrected people of God will be a reward for Paul and his ministry and a source of great joy. But, but Paul doesn't need to wait till later for, for the joy he receives from the Thessalonians because in the last verse of our text, verse 20, he says, for you are our glory and joy, present tense. So what Paul is saying here is that he has all the right kinds of pride in the Thessalonians. I know that sounds weird, but there are right kinds of pride, right? If, you're, if your kid do, does something good, you say, man, I'm proud of my son. That's right. You should say that. Uh, if, if, if someone in the church does something good or somebody suggests to me something good we should do, I'm like, yeah, I'm proud of that person. I, you know, that, that's entirely uh, good and right. There's a right kind of pride. Um, so, and what you're saying when you say, I, I'm proud of you, is you're saying, I get great joy and, and glory. I feel pride over what, what, uh, how God is working in you. So, Paul is not happy about his circumstances, but his circumstances do not rob him of his joy. He is literally facing opposition from the devil, but Paul still has joy. And the reason he has joy is because of the Thessalonians and God's work in, 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 in them. So Paul is encouraged by the Thessalonians, and he wants them to know it. He's encouraged by the Thessalonians. He has all the right kinds of pride because of them, and he wants them to know it. Um, you know, I'm not sure if we can ever have too much encouragement. I mean, do you think? Do you think it's possible? I, I don't think it is. I mean, consider how much the Thessalonians would be encouraged to hear Paul say that, man, you guys are my joy and my glory. I am so proud of you guys and what God is doing to you. Paul intends clearly here to encourage the church in Thessalonica. He had no reason that he had to tell him these things, but he tells them this intentionally to encourage them. And I think the application for us is that we should intend to encourage the church also. We should seek to encourage one another because I think that we all need more encouragement. I, I know for myself, I can't speak for you all, but I need more encouragement. And, and I think it's safe to say that we all need more encouragement because there are more than enough sources of discouragement in this world, whether it be unsaved family members or broken relationships or illness or financial struggles or the death of a loved one or difficulty parenting or an ungodly government or a society hell-bent on murdering infants and celebrating all manner of sexual immorality. There are many discouraging things in this world. There are many reasons to be discouraged in this life. And, and I can assure you that your brothers and sisters, the people sitting around you, 
the other members of the church are struggling with discouragement. I know that. And if that's the case, what if there was something that you could do to help? If we know that we're struggling with discouragement and there's something that we could do to help, aren't we obliged to do that? I mean, think of all of the ways that you could encourage someone. You could pray for them and you could tell them that you're praying for them. And not just that kind of like, oh yeah, praying for you. You know, and then you forget about it. Or you just kind of throw up a quick prayer to make sure that you don't forget because I told them I'd pray for them. I don't want to forget. No, I mean like... Put them on your prayer list and pray specific things for them and then tell them that you're praying for them. Maybe even tell them what you're praying for them. Um, Yeah. Uh, You can tell them when you see God at work in them. You know, man, I really really notice that you really seem to be... uh, uh, I I see in your prayer requests, even on the the list, that you're really... Uh, seeking to minister to your family. I really see that. Or, or man, I noticed your, your great desire to parent your children the other day. I noticed the other day one of your kids was running up the parking lot and you yelled and everybody turned around and looked at you. But man, I was encouraged because I, I knew that you were doing that because of your care for them. Or like all of these, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you, but just uh, think of, uh, look for ways that God is working at people's, in people's lives and tell them about it. You could share a verse with somebody which comes to mind when you're, when you're uh, uh, thinking about them. You can post a verse on your social media that you think would be an encouragement to people you could buy someone a coffee or a meal you can just spend time with them or you could just send them a note to tell them i appreciate you you know that's just like just a drop in the bucket i I, i'm not going to tell you the ways that you should seek to encourage someone else i'll tell you some ways you could but what i will tell you is that you should be thinking of ways that's your job that's our job collectively we should be thinking of ways that we can encourage others and then we need to do it because the, the reality is, is that we are often convicted by the wrong things that we do or say. Because we do and say them, right? You do something and you think, oh, what an idiot. And, you know, you repent and you ask God to forgive you of that. But we don't often think, uh, be convicted about the things that we should do and say that we don't. Because we don't do or say them. So we don't think about them. And the reality is that James tells us is that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So if you are sitting here right now and you're going, yeah, Sean, amen, I should be encouraging people more. And you don't? Hmm. Sin. The reality is that we often get so lost in ourselves and in our own situations and we become very self Focus, which means if we are going to do what I think we ought to do, which is to encourage one another, we're going to have to fight to think of others and ways to encourage them. So that's my exhortation to you. Think of ways that you can encourage others and then do it. If we will do this, I believe our church will be healthier. We will be a more united church, a church with more joy and hope. And isn't that what we need? You see, we don't always get what we want, even when we want good things. But if we keep our eyes on God and what would honor him. And if in response to God's kindness to us and saving us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we seek to worship him. And if we rely on the spirit's power at work in us to obey God, we just might get what we need. And we have learned this morning about three things that we need. We need more love for the church. We need joy in God, uh, regardless of circumstances. 
and in his work, and we need encouragement. We need to give it, and we need to receive it. So may God strengthen our love for those he has chosen and redeemed. May he increase our joy in, in him and his work, regardless of our circumstances, and may he give us all the right kinds of pride so that we boast in him and his work in us. And may he make us into a church full of encouragers. And may he do this for his glory and our good. Let's pray.